Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Last Lord's Day, we talked about um, the death of Lazarus, his two sisters sending word to Jesus, asking him to come. They didn't ask him to come to make their brother well, but that's what they intended. And so we examine what Scripture had to say here in this chapter about first Martha, because she's the first one listed, and then Mary. And both of them had in common when Jesus came, both of them said, Lord, had you been here, my brother would not have died. He was ill, sick, very sick. And so they sent word, Jesus, please come. And we are told in the first part of this chapter that Jesus loved Lazarus and he loved Martha and Mary, but he delayed in coming. He did not immediately leave and go to Bethany, which is where they live, which was two miles from Jerusalem. And so he finally arrives and Lazarus has been dead four days. Probably buried him on the day he died. If he died in the evening, they would have buried him the next day. We see where he was put in a, a tomb. It was a cave and a stone had been rolled over it. But the passage we're going to look at today really is central to the narrative. It brings into focus the plot line. And that is the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. The greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. Two other occasions are listed. One's already been read to us in our reading of scripture today of someone he raised from the dead. And then there is this one. And this entire chapter, 57 verses, is devoted to that topic, the resurrection of Lazarus. In fact, we read the words in verse 43 where Jesus, standing at his tomb, said, Lazarus, come forth. But let me re read beginning at verse 38 and going through verse 45, and then we'll come back and look at that portion of the Gospel of John. Verse 38 of John 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved, and note the word again, came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. 
the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, there's not a period at the end of verse 3, but we'll take up at verse 46 tonight, God willing. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, trying to get Jesus in trouble, keeping the the religious leaders informed because they didn't like Jesus. But some, in response to what they had seen, believed in him. As I've pointed out already, Jesus loved Lazarus. He was a close friend to this man and to his sisters. He was often in their home, but he got sick. They sent word that he was ill. Jesus journeys to Bethany where they live. No rush to go. He's on the Father's timetable, not Mary and Martha's. There was a plan in place to reveal the glory of God. So when Jesus did arrive in Bethany, Lazarus was in the grave. He died from his illness, whatever it was. And he had been in the tomb four days when Jesus showed up. The sickness led to death, but death was not the end of the story. And so what a marvelous narrative John led by the Spirit of God, weaves, unfolding in these various stages, this um, interaction of Jesus with Martha, with Mary, and now with Lazarus. And this, as I said, is the summit, the high point, the apex of the historical narrative. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John, in his gospel, records seven miraculous signs performed by Jesus. The first one is in John chapter 2, where he turned water into wine. Now, I'm a Baptist, and most Baptists I know would have been more pleased that Jesus turned all the wine into water. But he turned water into wine for a feast. The second miraculous sign is, He healed the son of a royal official. Then he healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. He fed 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish. He walked on the water to his disciples who were caught up into a storm. Then he gave sight to a man who was born blind. And that's a lengthy narrative. John chapter 9, 41 verses. And each of those miracles are wonderful and remarkable. But John saved the greatest to the last. It is the seventh miraculous sign. A man had been dead four days. Jesus called him forth from the grave and he came forth. Jesus had an interesting conversation in the third chapter of this gospel with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Do you remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus? He said, we know that you are a teacher come from God, 
For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we see demonstrated here in this miracle that God was with him. That Jesus was in fact the Son of God, the promised Messiah. And this miraculous sign demonstrates and illustrates that. Well, let's delve into this text. And the first thing we're going to see is, is a manifestation of passion. Look at verse 38. Jesus deeply moved again. And that word again is important because he'd already displayed deep emotion. Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. Deeply moved is the translation of a single Greek word. It appears here for the second time in the narrative. We looked at it last week when we studied verse 33 where we read that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. So he's deeply moved again. And I pointed out last week that the Greek word here usually denotes anger. Outrage, indignation, but few English translations rendered that way. Uh, the New American Standard and NIV translate it just like the ESV does here. Deeply moved. One translation has intensely moved. And the context favors that reading. Jesus wasn't angry. He was profoundly moved with sorrow in his inner being. And why was there sorrow? Well, the death of his friend, but also the grief that Mary and Martha and their friends displayed brought out deep emotion from the depth of his being. There was compassionate grief. And we saw last week the people who observed our Lord's passion exclaimed in verse 36, See how he loved him. So they recognized this grief that was on display was an expression born by Jesus out of love for uh, these sisters, for the man who had died. Their hearts were breaking. Their hearts were aching. And Jesus displayed sorrow and grief for them in the midst of their suffering. And so now, when he arrived at the place where the dead body of Lazarus had been, been laid, the same emotion came bursting out from him again. He entered their sorrows. He felt their pain. The writer of Hebrews captures this compassion in a negative way. Hebrews chapter 5 verse Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses. Now, we would put that in the positive. We would say we have a high priest that is capable of sympathizing with our weaknesses. But Scripture put it in the negative. We don't have this kind of high priest that's incapable of sympathizing with us. So here on this occasion, Jesus demonstrates his compassion in the presence of death, in the loss of Lazarus. 
Now, after telling us that Jesus was deeply moved again, John gives a few bits of information about the burial site. He says it was a cave and a stone lay against it. We already know that it was located outside the village. Caves were often used for burial by the Jews, and they were of two sorts. There were natural caves. They just were formed that way in the flood or whenever, whatever took place. And there were caves that had been hewn out by out of the rock. In fact, Jesus was buried in such a cave. We read in Mark chapter 15, verse 46, that a tomb had been cut out of the rock. And so the place where Lazarus was buried was a cave, either made naturally or hewn out from the rock. And the tomb, just like the grave of Jesus, we read about the end of the Gospels, was sealed by a stone. And standing at the cave where the body of Lazarus lay, Jesus was deeply moved. Next thing we see is a revelation of purpose. Standing before the stone that lay against the entrance to the cave, Jesus commanded that the stone be removed. Martha objected Verse 40, Jesus kindly rebuked her. And this is what he said. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Let's look at a few things here. Let's note, first of all, his instructions. Jesus said, take away the stone. We assume he said that to the people that were standing nearby, perhaps he eyed a few men, pointed them out, instructed them to remove the stone. But note, it was a word of command. He didn't ask the two sisters for permission to do this. His intention was to raise Lazarus, so he charged them. He commanded them to remove the stone. One commentator says, there has been enough wailing. Now it is time for action. So Jesus didn't remove the stone himself. He requires us often to do what we can, doesn't he? And so he instructed others to remove the stone. But note next the objection. Martha, the sister, one of the sisters of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. Martha couldn't understand why Jesus wanted them to remove the stone. She knew, as we've already seen, she believed Jesus would have healed her brother had he been there. But the thought of resurrection has not entered her mind, not even at this point. So she objects. And the reason she protests our Lord's instructions because the body of her brother had been in the tomb four days. And what does that mean? Decomposition and stench. We know from the last verse of the book of Genesis that the Egyptians embalmed the dead, at least the notable dead, because they embalmed Joseph and he was put in a coffin. 
But that was not the practice of the Jews. The Jews used aromatic spices at burial. We read John 19, verse 39. That's what happened at the tomb of Jesus. But aromatic spices do not prevent decay or remove the odor. So rolling back the stone was repugnant to Mary. She was horrified at the thought of it. Bodies decompose, and that creates a stench. Now, we don't know that so much with human bodies because we're never around them when they're decomposing. That's taken care of beforehand. But you've driven driven down the road before and somebody's hit a deer and the deer's been there three, four, five days. I know what I do when I drive by and see that. I see it up ahead of me and I take a deep breath and I wait till I get past that dead deer and then I roll my window down real quick and breathe in some fresh air that's clean and pure. I suppose had I been standing at the tomb of Lazarus and hear Martha say, by this time there'll be an odor if he's been dead four days, I would have said, amen. That's true. Let's, this doesn't make sense. We would have agreed. We would have joined in with her in making this objection. But let's look at the revelation. How did Jesus respond to Martha's objection? He asked a rhetorical question. Verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus is pointing Martha away from the corruption in the tomb and pointing her to the glory that he had promised. Now Jesus reminded Martha of what he had told her before. Now if we look back to the conversation that Jesus had with her, which is recorded in verses 21 to 27, we don't see Jesus exactly saying what he says here. But if you go back to verse 4 of this chapter, he did tell his disciples and the messengers who brought word from Martha and Mary that Lazarus was sick, this illness does not lead to death. That is, it does not end in death. And then note the words, it is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So the messengers would have conveyed that to the sisters and we can read through the lines and say Jesus did as well when he came, but John didn't record that. But we know that he told Martha, verse 23, that her brother would rise again. And then he told her, verse 25, that he was the resurrection and the life. So Jesus is reminding her of what he had said before. He had given her hope, but she had failed to comprehend it. Jesus had told her that the death of her brother would be an occasion for the glory of God to be revealed. 
The Lord promised Martha that if she would believe, she would see the glory of God revealed. He was going to raise Lazarus from the tomb whether she believed or not. But with just a little faith, her eyes would be open and she would see the glory of God. The glory of God is what's central here. The purpose of Lazarus' sickness and death was what? The greater glory of God and that the Son of God might be glorified. If, if you ever struggle with why did God decree sin, it's for his greater glory. And you can say that about all things. Any disease, any sickness, any illness... These things are not good in themselves, but they bring forth a greater glory of God. So Lazarus' death was not the end. His death was a means to bring glory to God the Father and to God the Son. We then read that in obedience to the command of Jesus, first part of verse 41, they took the stone away. The third thing we see in this narrative is an invocation of prayer. After the stone was removed from the entrance to the tomb, Jesus prayed. Look at verse 41. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prayed by lifting up his eyes. We often pray by turning our eyes down, don't we? We bow our head in reverence and we pray to God. Jesus lifted up his eyes. The real Lord's Prayer, what we said today is a model prayer, isn't it? We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's a model prayer. It's for us to pray. The real Lord's Prayer is John 17. And it begins with these introductory words, John 17, verse 1. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Before Jesus broke the bread to feed the 5,000, we read, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. The second psalm of ascent, Psalm 121, begins, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's a psalm of ascent. That is when the worshipers came to Jerusalem and they did so generally three times a year for various, the main feast. And they would sing these psalms and as they came, they naturally saw the mountains that surrounded the city. But the psalmist speaks of lifting up their eyes to the hills, but lifting them up beyond the hills to the God 
who made the hills. And he said with resolve and confidence, my help comes from the Lord who made these hills, who makes heaven and earth. As Jesus prayed, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now let's examine the prayer he uttered. We should take note that this prayer is not a prayer of petition. He didn't ask the Father to do anything. That's because he'd already been determined what would happen that day. This prayer was a prayer of thanksgiving. Jesus thanked the Father that he had already heard him. In fact, Jesus went on to say that the Father always heard him. Always. That is, there was never a, a disruption in the communion between the Father and the Son. They were in perfect harmony and agreement together. Note also that this prayer was offered with the people in mind who heard it. Look at verse 42. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. And for this purpose, that they believe, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus publicly thanked the Father, and now he publicly declares that he prayed this particular prayer on account of people standing around him for the reason that they may believe in him. Public prayer ought to keep in mind those who hear it. It isn't that the one who prays should be playing to the crowd. Oh, I'll say some things in my prayer that'll tickle their ears and please them. No, that's not in view. It's that the people will receive benefit and blessing from hearing the prayer. So in his prayer, Jesus is basically preaching to the people. He's saying what he's saying because they're listening. Did you know some folks may not listen to your witness to them, but if they give you permission to pray for them, and I've met few that wouldn't let you pray with them, you can preach the gospel to them in your prayer. When you gather with a group of people next time and you're asked to pray, why don't you earnestly and sincerely pray but remember the people listening to you and say something in the prayer for their benefit. That is, preach to them. In the prayer. I, because I'm a preacher, am usually the one called on in large family gatherings to pray. I'm always conscious of Jesus making this declaration. So I don't want to just thank God for food and and his blessings and his provisions. I thank him for his son, whom he sent to save sinners. And we're all sinners in need of salvation from him. What a marvelous way to proclaim the gospel. And so on this occasion, Jesus' prayer was not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of those who were standing around him. And so he publicly thanks the Father for what he's 
about to do, what is about to happen. And this would be for the purpose of their believing. That is, they're coming to realize what Nicodemus did, that no one can do these miraculous signs that you do unless God be with him. His mission would be authenticated by the raising of Lazarus. And so in his prayer, he makes it clear that what he was about to do was connected with his commission from the Father. But there's a fourth thing. We see a demonstration of power. The apex toward which everything in this chapter has been moving is the demonstration of power by Jesus in the resurrection of Lazarus. So note how John simply but movingly writes in verse 43, when he had said these things, when Jesus said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And then John says, the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. As I said before, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is the last of the seven signs presented by John in his gospel. So it's a climactic miracle. It's the greatest miracle that he performed. Jesus brought a man that had been dead four days back to life. They couldn't dispute that he was really dead. He'd been in that tomb for four days. Well, how did it happen? Jesus stood outside the tomb where the stone had just been removed and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. It says he, he cried out, with a loud voice. He didn't speak in soft tones, though he might have done. I like what R.C. Sproul says. He didn't whisper an invitation to the corpse. He spoke loudly at the top of his voice. Some even translate, he shouted with a loud voice. Why speak Loudly. It wasn't necessary to speak loudly for the dead to hear his voice because the dead cannot hear. He spoke loudly so the people would know that his command was spoken with power and authority. And such will be his voice when he comes on that day when all the living are caught up to meet him in the air, and the dead are raised. You're familiar with 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. ESV has with a cry of command. Well, what did he say with the shout of a command? He said, Lazarus. Come out. Come forth. Probably 20 years ago, I was in Hopkinsville, Kentucky for a wake. 
of a woman who had died, whose son was a member of our congregation. He had some relatives that were caught up in the deep end of the charismatic movement. The casket was down in front of the church, big church, people going by, viewing, people milling around. I was standing in the back with a couple of friends and we were just talking. And all of a sudden, we hear this cry, Jean, come forth! One of those, I almost say deranged, but that's not the word, confused, deep in era family members. Thought he had the power to raise his mother-in-law from the death. I tell you what, it got real quiet in that place. You could have heard a pin drop. And so he does it again. Gene, come forth! One of the men I was standing with later said, boy, if she'd have come forth, I don't know what I would have done. But she didn't. He had no power to raise her from the dead. You look at these charismatic people today. Have you ever been to their meetings? I've been to a few. On one occasion, I was gonna, they were speaking in tongues, and I was going to stand up and quote Hebrews 1.1 in Hebrew and see what someone would have said in interpreting it. That's foolish stuff. I've been to the Civic Center to hear people like Ernest Angsley speak and observe. You never see anyone healed who's got a crippling disease, something wrong with them that you can see. It's always something you can't see. And they say you're dead. And they never raise the dead. Well, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. If you literally translate it, it would be like this, Lazarus, here, outside, clear, concise, and powerful was his command. And what happened? Verse 44, the man who had died came out. His dead body was quickened by the powerful command of Jesus. His heart began to beat again. Blood rushed through his veins and arteries. His lungs started breathing air again. That rotting, putrefying flesh became whole and he was healed. He got up from where he had laid and he walked out on his own strength. Now, it may have been difficult for Lazarus to come out for we read that his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with cloths, so he probably shuffled more than walked. But he came out and Jesus told the others, unbind him and let him go. What powerful words, Lazarus, come out. Well, the Puritans said, had not Jesus addressed Lazarus by name 
And if he had just said, come out, all the graves would have emptied. But he says, Lazarus. And the man came out. Note that the miracle was done without fanfare. There's no showmanship here. No hype. No theatrics. The glory of God was displayed to all who had an eye to see it. John MacArthur comments, At his command, the king of terrors yielded up his lawful captive. The grave was robbed of its victory. The door of death in Hades was unlocked by the one who alone holds the key. And here this narrative of the resurrection of Lazarus abruptly ends. John draws the curtain down quickly. Now we may wonder what occurred afterwards when the sisters greeted their brothers. Did they hug him? Were their tears of sorrow turned into tears of joy? What did they say to him? Welcome back. Good to see you again. We missed you. What's it like being dead for four days? I think that would have been the question that had been uppermost on my mind. You know, you get over in chapter 12 of John, verses 9 to 11, Jesus back in Bethany, and a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, and they came. Note verse 9 of John 12. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. Yeah, you talk about interesting to see a man who had been dead. But there's no fanfare, no theatrics. Very little is recorded in sacred scripture. John is silent on the details. The focus is on him who had the power to raise the dead. Can you imagine this happening in our day and age? And somebody would be immediately there to, to say, Lazarus, we've got a contract we'd like for you to sign. We'd like to put you on a tour. We're going to write a book. And we're going to make some money on this. That's what would happen today. But we are left only to consider what a glorious day it was. The creative power of God reverses the corruption and the dead corpse is quickened to life. Merrill Tenney says it was a supreme demonstration of the power of eternal life that triumphed over death, corruption, and hopelessness. We should all well consider that one day in the future, what happened to Lazarus will happen on a grand scale. That was the reading from the Catechism this morning. Jesus raising Lazarus was a preview of the divine power of God that's going to be on display when Jesus raises 
all the dead on that day. Some raised to everlasting life, some raised to shame and everlasting content. In fact, if you go back to chapter 5 of John, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What does this tell us, dear friends? It tells us it's not over, all over when we die. You may wish, some of you may wish it were all over, but all who hear in his voice who are in the grave will hear his voice and they will come forth. And some will come forth and enjoy eternal life, the bliss and glory of that. Others will come forth and be cast into hell. Or as Jesus said at the end of Matthew 25, these shall go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I ask you, what does your future hold? Will you be among those who rise to experience life or will you be among those who rise to face eternal damnation? A resurrection at the end of the age is coming and all of us will be summoned to stand before God in the judgment. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, we are more sure to rise out of our graves than out of our beds. Well, there's one final point for us to see this morning, and that's a transformation of people. John records in verse 45, one of the outcomes of the raising of Lazarus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, there's another reaction uh, in verse 46. We'll examine that, God willing, tonight. So what's John doing here? He's offering proof, as he has done throughout his gospel, which is the very purpose for which he wrote it. And that is the miraculous sign showed who Jesus is and called us to belief. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs. The seven signs recorded in the Gospel of John are only a few. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, what do you get when you believe? You may have life in his name. And this was the outcome of the resurrection of Lazarus. Many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen this miracle believed in him. Whatever they thought about Jesus beforehand, they now see who he is. And they became believers, many of them. Not all of them, but many. What about you? What is your reaction to this record of the miracle 
that is recorded in Scripture. Do you dismiss it out of hand? Do you say it's legend? It's myth. It's not miracle. It's not real. Do you reject the possibility of dead men rising from the grave? Do you deny the supernatural power of God that was on display when Christ brought Lazarus back to life? We are called to believe. You say, oh, but if I could see the miracle, I would believe. But I'm not going to believe it if I can't see it. Luke 16 talks about some people like that. And Jesus says, they won't even believe if someone is raised from the dead. And there were people that lived then who saw Lazarus come forth and would not believe. But we are called to believe. And all who believe in him are saved from sin and judgment. All who believe in him receive eternal life. So we cannot overestimate the significance of Jesus raising Lazarus. This event proves that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It authenticates him as the Messiah who came to do the will of his Father. And it affirms to us that every promise he made shall be fulfilled. I hope you know that there are spiritual lessons in all of the Lord's miracles. The lesson in this one is what? The likeness of Lazarus rising to life can be compared to the rising of the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins. That word of assurance today was from Ephesians 2. That chapter begins by speaking of us who are dead in trespasses and sins. And then verse 4 where the reading started, But God! Martin Lloyd-Jones has a whole sermon on those two words. But God! Here man is depraved, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world. But God! God, by his mighty power, comes and does what? He quickens us, makes us alive. Makes it so that though we're still living here, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And by his power, we've been saved by grace through faith. Not by our own works, but by his power and glory. You see, we cannot raise ourselves to life, spiritual life. God must act to save us. And the resurrection of Lazarus is a beautiful picture of the quickening work of the Spirit in the soul of man. The one who is the resurrection and the life is the one who has the power of life and the power of death in his hand. He is the one who can speak the word and the dead can come forth. Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, he uh, used to teach uh, young men preaching. 
And I have read that on occasions he would take his homiletical students out to a seminary. Cemetery. I'm sorry. We sometimes say some seminaries are like cemeteries, but take them out to the cemetery. And then he instructs them to preach to the people buried there. And they, well, they're dead. Why are we going to preach to them? He said, the people who are unconverted that you preach to, whether on the streets or in the church, they're dead. Not physically, but they're dead spiritually. But we preach to them. And in the preaching of the gospel, God is pleased to come and save many. And dear friends, in the preaching of the gospel today, he is calling us out of spiritual death. And he makes us alive together with him. And I pray if you do not have the life of God in your soul, that Jesus will today give life to you who are dead in trespasses and sin. Stand in awe of his love. Stand in awe of his power. And cast yourself before him. And confess that he is the life-giving Savior. And worthy of glory. One of my favorite authors is J.C. Ryle. He said, Comfortable is the thought that there is no sinner too far gone in sin for Christ to raise and convert. He that stood by the grave of Lazarus can say to the vilest of men, live. We thank you today for the power of God that can raise the dead. Thank you that Jesus demonstrated he was the son of the living God when he called Lazarus to come forth from the grave and open our eyes to see his glory to see his power we pray that you would help us this day to believe if our hearts are cold stone-like come and quicken them and may we cry out to thee the God who's never turned one sinner away oh come encourage our hearts with this glorious truth we've studied. And may it be the occasion of someone being born again by the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.